can't get enough of the podcast? Lucky for you, our video IQ platform on adorebeauty.com.au houses thousands of articles on skincare, makeup, hair care, and more. Plus, you can find a heap of video tutorials, ingredient spotlights, and brand breakdowns on our YouTube channel. Just click on Beauty IQ in the menu bar of the website or app or search Adore Beauty on YouTube for more beauty content. Welcome everybody to Beauty IQ, the podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Fleming. And I am your co-host, Hannah First. I feel like not much has happened since I spoke to you last time. Um, I've been at my house. I've watched Les Miserables with my parents all weekend. Yep. Yeah, it was very intense. I don't think I've ever seen Les Miserables. It's on ABC and it's and it's actually not the musical. So you keep waiting for them to, to start oh. like a big song and nothing happens. Oh, Yeah, okay. it's a very long series. So it's like six episodes. They're like an hour each. It's like three movies. It's crazy. So okay. I did that all weekend. I've been watching Ozark. Ozark? I don't know how to say it. I started watching that. Yeah, it's really good. It's very stressful. I don't need any more stress in my life. I know my anxiety is through the roof, but I've left the last episode to watch tonight. Season one or season three? No, 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 season three. Oh. I was like, I was literally sweating last night watching it. So I I can't watch it before bed. It gives me anxiety. (laughs) Same. I don't know why I did it, but anyway. What's on today's episode, Hannah? So on today's episode, we have a fertility specialist, Dr. Mm-hmm. Raylia Liu. She's also a gynecologist and the director of Women's yep. Health at Melbourne. And the new co-host of this podcast because you couldn't join us for that interview. I've had a busy week, sorry. I wasn't actually <laughs> sick, I just had a busy week. But yeah, she co-hosted the segment with Joe. That was about endometriosis. Yes. Then we have Michelle Wong from Lab Muffin Beauty Science and she's on to talk about ingredients and how to read an ingredients label and of course mm-hmm. the products we didn't know we needed. So today's guest is kind of going to be my co-host for this segment because Hannah isn't joining us today. So Dr. Raylia Liu, hi Raylia. Hi. Is going to join us today. Um, I I hope you don't mind being my co-host for this segment. I totally love it, Joanna. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You have your own podcast called Knocked Up and today we are going to be talking about endometriosis. It's not our usual cringy convo. Usually we're a bit silly in these cringy convos, but it is something that women don't really talk about enough and it's not something that it's really widely understood. So we thought being a women's platform, this would be a great topic for us to cover, especially with someone that has as many qualifications as you do. When we were chatting and I saw all of your qualifications, I was like overwhelmed with all of these things that you've managed to achieve. Can you give us a bit of background on, on where you've gotten to where you are? Yeah, sure. So I'm a CREI fertility specialist. So that's a gynecologist who has gone on to complete specialty training in gynaecology. And then I subspecialised in the area of fertility and reproductive endocrinology, which they're big words, but basically it means all aspects of hormonal management throughout a woman's life and also fertility for both men and women. So endometriosis is bread and butter to my practice because it is such a common condition and it is such a common cause of both pain and also infertility. Yeah, well, I read that one in 10 women suffers with endometriosis, and it's about 176 million women worldwide that suffer from it. Can you give us a little bit of insight into what endometriosis actually is, if people that are listening to this haven't heard of it before, and and why does it happen in certain people? 
Sure. So endometriosis is a really cryptic condition. And actually, it's not particularly well understood as to why it actually happens. We know it's genetic to some degree, but not like there's a single gene that causes it. We know that if you have endometriosis, uh, your risk of having a relative with endometriosis is high. And when you flip that around, if your mum or your sister had endo, then you have seven times the chance of having endo as someone from the general population. And we just said that one in 10 women have endo. So it's, it's really, really common and there is a genetic predisposition. What it actually is, is it's a condition where tissues in the pelvis, they kind of go rogue. And while they're meant to just stay in their category, so a uterus tissue is meant to be a uterus tissue or a skin lining the pelvis tissue is meant to be more skin-like. What endometriosis is, is where little patches within the pelvis act like the endometrium, which is the tissue that lines the uterus that's meant to shed when you have your period. It's, so it causes bleeding when you have your period and inflammation when you have your period, but not just in the uterus, wherever that tissue happens to be. And it can be right. anywhere. It can be anywhere around the pelvis, on the ovary, on or in the fallopian tubes, which are the highway where egg and sperm meet to make babies. Uh, it can be on the ligaments of the pelvis. That's a particularly common area. So it can cause pain when you have sex. Uh, it can be on the kind of outer aspects that you can't you know, naturally see of the vagina. So it can cause mm-hmm. nodules in the vagina. It can be anywhere. And it can even be on the bowel. So some women with endo have symptoms that are quite obscure and might be more bowel-related symptoms. So they might have the suspicion that they might have irritable bowel syndrome, where in fact it's endo. So one of the reasons that um, it's hard to diagnose is that sometimes symptoms can be kind of crossing over between two different or three different possible common conditions. And another reason that it's hard is that ultrasound is, although it's the best tool we have, it's actually not that sensitive and it misses about 50% of cases of endo. Wow. Well, I did read that it can take up to seven years to diagnose someone with endo. So women are going through the whole, you know, symptom process and trying to work out what's wrong and it does take quite a while. Is that right? Look, I think it really depends and you have to kind of take into account, I think also historically that women's complaints have not been taken seriously. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a major issue, particularly of the past. At the moment, I think we're much more likely to have a high index of suspicion for endometriosis as we understand more about it. Mm -hmm. And we understand that it can be easily missed. The problem and difficulty is that looking for it, the gold standard to investigate endometriosis is a laparoscopy, which is a keyhole surgery. And that in itself Mm -hmm. is quite invasive for a woman to go through. She has to have an anaesthetic. She has to have a little camera put through the belly button to have a look inside. It's quite a big deal. And so we we don't want to be doing it if there's not a really good reason. But at the same time, for some women, unless we do that procedure, we're not going to get to the bottom of if they have endo or if they don't. Yeah. Well, what, what are some of the symptoms that women with endometriosis will experience on, you know, from a mild to extreme level? So, you know, women with endo sometimes are completely asymptomatic. And that is the mm-hmm. real difficulty 
uh, I see that more in my fertility practice. Yeah. Where a woman might present and her, her main symptom is actually infertility. Whereas some women have excruciating period pain and there's everything in between. One thing that is kind of like a bit of a red herring is that often women for other reasons or even for reasons of maybe early symptoms of endo might have been on the pill for a really long time and the pill Mm -hmm. is one of the medical treatments actually of endo. So Ah, okay. So does that just mask the symptoms and then women get off the pill and they're like, whoa, what is going on? Yeah, and what happens is they might get off the pill and because the pill actually suppresses endo quite well for a lot of women – And it doesn't just like turn on like a light switch. It kind of turns on gradually Mm -hmm. and gets worse. So a a common presenting symptom is increasing period pain over time having stopped the pill. And Mm -hmm. I I ask that question for women particularly whose partners have normal sperm and they're trying to have babies because it it makes me think of endo knowing that 50% of women with endo will have a normal ultrasound. Yeah. And so endo can affect fertility and that's something that might not be at the forefront of kind of listeners' minds right now, but it's actually really a very important concept because endometriosis is progressive and there can be serious effects down the line. So getting an early diagnosis is actually really powerful because we can stop endo in its tracks by simple measures like using hormonal contraception. Uh, We can use dietary measures to try and have an anti-inflammatory diet. So there's a big role for different allied health professionals like clinical dietitians in the management of endo. Oh, that's super interesting that that's related. Yeah, absolutely. So at what age is it common to be diagnosed with endometriosis? Does it really swing quite a lot or are there teenagers that come in and it's clear that they have the condition? I think gynecologists in general, particularly historically, have had a reluctance to put a teenager through an operation like a laparoscopy. So what often happens is girls present with painful periods as a teen and they're put on the pill and they're better on the pill. So often women do kind of tread water on the pill for, you know, even a decade before they get to the point where they're sick of being on the pill and want to come off the pill and that's when Mm -hmm. the endo kind of comes back into the picture. The answer is basically women can be diagnosed with endo at any age, but it's very common to be diagnosed when you're trying to think about starting a family because that's Mm -hmm. when you come off contraception. And do those um, symptoms that women may experience, do they start to dissipate once a woman starts to go through menopause? Yeah, absolutely. So they do. Yeah. They do. So we've only got to deal with it for like 60 years. Well, that's, that's it. Okay. That's it. Only 60 years. Actually, <laughs> actually, the average age of menopause is 50. And actually, it's, okay. a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting point because a lot of, and a little bit off topic, but the majority of women actually underestimate when fertility declines and when reproductive years end. And men are even worse. They, they actually underestimate it by over a decade. So you know, it's important to understand that actually fertility starts to go down when you're 35, not when you're 40 or 50. And so, you know, that leads on back to egg freezing and endometriosis. Actually, that's something that I do for a lot of my patients with endometriosis. Okay. So if they have endometriosis and they're younger, do you recommend that they have their eggs frozen just as a precautionary measure? Yeah, absolutely. Because what happens is endometriosis is a progressive 
condition that actually affects both egg number through the destruction of the ovary by blood-filled cysts called endometriomas and also egg quality. And actually endometriosis is one of the few reasons for egg freezing that is supported by Medicare because it's a cause of infertility. So it's not just egg freezing for future planning, it's egg freezing to try and help women avoid infertility. That's really good to know, especially for anyone that's that's listening and is considering that option. If people are listening and they suspect that they possibly could have endometriosis symptoms, what could they expect to be experienced? Is it something that you get bloating from or is it really just categorized around that pain? Or as you said, sometimes it can just be no symptoms at all. Um, who should she consult for an expert opinion? So I think it's important to start with your GP, but to specifically Mm -hmm. raise the concern that you think you might have endo and advocate for yourself to have a referral to see a specialist gynecologist, because that's Mm -hmm. who can help you further. And it's really never too early to see a gynecologist, because this is a woman's health specialist that you're likely to need to touch base with for various reasons over time throughout your entire reproductive life as a woman. So Mm-hmm. I think that's the the first port of call for women who think they might have endo is to see their GP and kind of have a triage, but also potentially a referral to see a specialist. Yeah. So you would see a lot of women come into your clinic. Do you, Have you ever had anyone that's been wrongly diagnosed with endometriosis? Actually, no, I never have. And I, I think that's important because it is such a common condition. If I have mm-hmm. a a couple, for example, who are trying to have a baby and the sperm's normal and all the other tests look normal on paper, there's actually an 80% chance that if I do a laparoscopy, I'll find endo. It is that common. Wow. So, wow, that's insane. Yeah. So it's a common cause of problems and a common cause of undiagnosed infertility. So really important to recognize that that also means that there's probably a lot of women out there walking around with severe period pain, thinking that they're normal, thinking that, oh, mm-hmm. everyone gets this pain. But, uh, you know, most women don't need to take a day off work when they have their period. Most women don't need to take heavy duty drugs when they have their period. So if you feel like you need to, every time you have your period, do either of those things, then it's worth getting a bit more of an assessment and a further look into whether you could have endo. Yeah, well, I did read that it can really impact a woman's productivity and their presence at work and their presence at home even and their ability to do everyday tasks when they are in pain. I wondered if there was any other conditions that endometriosis is related to like polycystic ovary syndrome or anything like that? No, they're separate, but you can have both at the same time. So they're they're not related to each other. They don't cause each other, but it's possible to have both. Actually, to some degree, polycystic ovarian syndrome, if anything, is a little bit protective if you do have endo because Mm -hmm. with polycystic ovarian syndrome, one of the ways that it can affect women is they don't regularly ovulate. And it's actually the hormones of the menstrual cycle and ovulation that makes endo worse over time. It stirs it up but otherwise they're not related. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to get you to come back to talk about um, polycystic ovaries in a separate interview and then also talk about um, menopause. And I think we've got like a thousand things that we could get you on to talk about. So I think we're going to end up having you back at some point, Raylia. Oh, it would be my greatest um, And talking further. So if you want to hear Raylia on her own podcast, it's called Knocked Up. Raylia, can people also see you at Women's Health Melbourne? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I practice at Women's Health Melbourne in Fitzroy and also in Caulfield. And Mm -hmm. I also practice at Melbourne IVF. That's where I do all my IVF and egg freezing. And you can follow me on the socials at Dr. Rayleigh Alou and at Women's Health Melbourne. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today. I'm sure we'll have you back soon. Ciao. Thank you. Welcome to our next guest. Michelle Wong joins us. She's a science educator and content creator, but you might know her better as Lab Muffin Beauty Science on Instagram. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, good morning. It's very nice to have you on today because we're going to be talking about, I think deciphering ingredients would be a good way to sum up this interview because we get a lot of questions about how to read an ingredients label. How do you work out what's in your products and, you know, how do you determine what's what. Can you explain a bit about the method of reading an ingredients label on your skincare? Sure. So on the ingredients list, so when you flip to the back of a packet, they'll have an ingredients list and legally they have to list the ingredients in descending order. So in other words, the first ingredient is going to be the thing that's there's most of. So usually that's going to be water. Um, Then Mm -hmm. it's going to be, yeah, the next highest and so on around where there's 1%. So if there's 1% or less of an ingredient, then they can list it in any order. There's a few caveats though. So even if you have two ingredients lists that are exactly the same, it is possible that they are not the same product. So for example, Mm -hmm. if you have water, then I don't know, um, sunflower oil. If you have two products that have those two lists, then you could have 50% water, 50% sunflower oil, or you could have 99% water, 1% sunflower oil, and they would have the same ingredients list. Mm. Okay. All right. So it's a little bit more complex than (laughs) maybe we first thought. (laughs) What ingredients should we look for and what should we avoid in a general sense? Um, In a general sense? I don't think there really is anything that everyone should avoid. I think it's everyone's skin is different. Everyone reacts differently to different ingredients. And so a lot of the time it's about learning what your skin likes and what your skin doesn't like and learning to look for those ingredients or avoid them. So I guess the most common ingredients that people have problems with, sodium lauryl sulfate is a common one. So that's a cleansing ingredient. It is one of the harsher cleansing ingredients now. We have a lot more gentle cleansers on the market. So a lot of the time, if that's high up on an ingredients list, it can lead to um, dehydrated skin. So your skin might feel tight. It might feel a bit itchy. It might Mm -hmm. be a bit more sensitive than normal. So I think most people probably could avoid that. I mean, that doesn't mean that if you're using a cleanser that has SLS in it and your skin is fine, then that that's mm-hmm. fine. It can be formulated so that it is quite gentle. Other problem ingredients, um, fragrance is a relatively common sensitivity. So some people are actually allergic to fragrance. Essential oils often have allergens in them as well. So if your skin is sensitive, it might be a good idea to avoid that. There's also a couple of preservatives that have really common reactions. So they're called MI and MCI. My skin is not very sensitive, but it is sensitive to those. So if I have them in a shampoo, then I get a really 
itchy, irritated scalp. Oh, really? Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I, what I really like about your Instagram is that it really is like a myth-busting channel for skincare. Perhaps you could expand a little bit on the myths around alcohols and silicones and parabens in skincare and what those ingredients actually do and why they're used or not used anymore. Sure. Thank, thank you, by the way. <laughs> it's really <laughs> nice to hear. Um, maybe we'll start with parabens. So parabens are preservatives. Mm-hmm. They're in lots of products. Before there were preservatives, there were all these issues with people getting infections from their products. So one of the problems with products is that they tend to contain a lot of water and bacteria mm-hmm. and fungi love water. So mm-hmm. you might have seen this if you've ever gotten like a more natural product and then you've left it for a bit too long and then you open yep. it and you've got like furry stuff it in get, it. It like, gets a film of, yeah, stuff on the top yeah, of it. or like black spots or something, yeah. So yeah. sometimes that can be bad for you. Like as we sort of know now with COVID, there are germs everywhere and if you have too many, mm-hmm. then it can infect you. So preservatives are important to um, reduce that from happening. It still does happen, but the chances become a lot lower. So there are yep. really quite dreadful things happening before preservatives so people would get these nasty ulcers in their eye and like it could make you go blind wow yeah nowadays when you put on an eye cream like going blind is not on your radar and that's because of preservatives (laughs) so yeah parabens um i don't think they're worth avoiding unless you are specifically allergic to them okay and Mm. what's the place of silicones in skincare um, so silicones, there's actually quite a lot of different silicones. There are mm-hmm. ones that are volatile, so cyclopentasiloxane, for example. So these help. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little yeah. bit. <laughs> so this one helps products spread on your skin. It's mm-hmm. mostly used in foundations, primers, and sunscreens. So things where you want there to be a nice, smooth film on your skin. Yep. Another one is dimethicone. Dimethicone is not volatile, which means it doesn't evaporate. Cyclopentasiloxane evaporates after you apply it. Dimethicone acts as a moisturizer. So it helps your skin retain water. Interesting. Okay. So there's nothing to be scared about when you can see silicones in your products? With silicones, um, health-wise, there isn't. There are a Mm -hmm. few environmental concerns. Okay. That's interesting. Mm. And then on to alcohols. There's often talk around alcohols and skincare being bad. Are there good alcohols in skincare? And if so, what what should we look out for? So alcohols is like a really broad group. Um, Anything with an OH group is technically an alcohol. But if you see the word alcohol Mm -hmm. on an ingredients list, usually it will be ethyl alcohol, which is the drying alcohol. So that one, if your skin is prone to getting dried out, then it could be worth avoiding. But there's there's no evidence that there's any long-term effects. So I think I've seen people say that it um, makes your skin age or it might produce free radicals in your skin, but there's not much evidence of that happening, Uh, which is good because I've been using so much hand sanitizer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, In terms of good alcohols, fatty alcohols tend to be quite good. So these are things like sterile um, and settle alcohol. These are basically just oily substances that will moisturize your skin. They're also really good in hair products. Okay. Mm. So when it comes to complementary ingredients in products, a question that we get all the time is um, what ingredients can I not mix together or what can I mix together? What goes together? Are there any ingredients that are complementary to each other when included in a formula? Like um, I know that C ferulic is a really popular yeah. product for us. 
Yeah, so um, C ferulic is a really classic combination. So vitamin C is extremely unstable. It breaks down, if it's in water by itself, it breaks down in about three weeks. When it's placed with other antioxidants, they help the vitamin C stay as vitamin C so that when you put it on your skin, it's still active. So yeah, vitamin E and ferulic acid are great for that with vitamin C. I probably wouldn't Mm -hmm. recommend getting vitamin C by itself unless it was with some other antioxidants. That's a good tip. Mm. Do you recommend not mixing, like the biggest question is, can I mix glycolic acid or acids in general Mm. with retinol? Do you, is that something you recommend or don't recommend? I think the only real issue with that is irritation. Um, So retinol is so irritating on its own that a lot of the time you you probably Mm. want to stop anything else irritating as you're adding it into your routine. So I think if you've added retinol into your routine and your skin has stopped flaking like mad, then adding glycolic acid shouldn't be a big yeah, problem. Yeah. I always say it's down to personal preference at the end of the day, if your skin can tolerate it. I yeah. love mixing. James Vivian, who we had on for the exfoliation episode, he wears his retinol with his AHAs um, every night. And that just is like, that sounds like a maniac to me. (laughs) For him, he's like, my skin can just tolerate it. And I guess men's skin can tolerate a little bit more than than ours can, I guess, because it's a little bit thicker. Mm. Can you touch a little bit on chemicals in skincare? Because I think it's become a bit of a buzz phrase to say something that is chemical free. Mm. But as you say on your Instagram, what am I paying for then? (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) everything is a chemical, Uh um, even water. Anything you touch or breathe in or anything is a chemical. So chemical free. We're chemicals, aren't we? Exactly. We're made of like DNA, proteins, um, tons of chemicals. So I think, yeah, chemical free. The only thing that's really chemical free is like a vacuum with no air in it. So you would be paying Mm -hmm. for nothing. I think a lot of the time, though, when people say chemical, what they mean is a synthetic chemical, so something that's Mm man-made. And even then, it's not really a great stance. So there are tons of things in nature that are really nasty and will kill you. So, for example... um, As we know, we live in Australia. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So many spider poisons, toxins. Yeah. Thinking that natural is safer is not really the case. Even in skincare with things like essential oils, they tend to be the things that people have allergic reactions to. If you have incredibly sensitive skin, a lot of the time a dermatologist will prescribe you a product that is almost entirely synthetic chemicals for that reason. You're a big advocate for wearing sunscreen. Can you briefly explain to us the difference between chemical and physical sunscreen and why you might choose one over the other? So chemical and physical sunscreen mostly refers to how the sunscreens work. So chemical sunscreens absorb UV and convert it to heat. Physical sunscreens actually do mostly this as well. So about 90% of incoming UV is absorbed and turned into heat, but about 10% of it is reflected or scattered. So that's the main Mm -hmm. difference. And that was only a recent discovery, wasn't it, Michelle? Because up until relatively recently, we thought that physical sunscreens reflected a higher percentage of those rays. Is that right? I think it's not really a new discovery as such. Um, I think it's Mm -hmm. mostly that it's become a lot more popular because a paper was published which was like, stop saying this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, I mean, it's not even just a marketing myth or anything. It's been in dermatology journals, like proper peer-reviewed dermatology journals for years. It's good that that's getting out Mm -hmm. there now. Yeah, so that's the main difference. So in terms of reasons for using one over the other, 
I think this is mostly an American thing, to be honest. So um, Australia has better sunscreens than America. Yeah. We probably have the best sunscreens in the world, don't we? I think we do. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a bunch of sunscreen ingredients that we're allowed to use here, which they aren't allowed to use in the US. But because the US is such a monopoly on um, beauty marketing, a lot of the time their marketing, even though it doesn't really apply here, people still say that. So there is a common thing which is physical sunscreens are better for sensitive skin um, which is true in the US if you only have access to US sunscreens but here it's sort of a bit less clear-cut so physical sunscreens are safer I guess if you don't look at the ingredients list if you look at the ingredients list and it has newer chemical sunscreens then that is also fine for sensitive skin Ah. the other thing about um, physical sunscreens is that because they reflect and scatter uv they also do this a little bit with visible light so your skin tends to look a bit whiter if you're wearing those um so if your Mm -hmm. skin is a bit darker so mine isn't even that dark it's like nc20 in matte yep you can still see a white cast on your skin yep so for a deeper skin tone a chemical formula is likely going to cosmetically look better. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have a segment on the podcast called Product We Didn't Know We Needed, Mm -hmm. which um, is probably mine and Hannah's favorite segment, I think, after the cringy combo. And we wondered if you had a product you didn't know you needed from your, I assume, massive collection of beauty (laughs) products, is there a skincare product or a beauty product that you just cannot live without that you want to share with us? Honestly, I think, okay, it is a hair care product. Okay, yeah. It is the IGK Purple Drops. Oh, how good are they? They are so good. You can mm. add them to anything. Amazing. Yeah, they're really cool. You literally just add them to any other hair product, like a shampoo I think you can I've add them to. I've not heard of these. They're so good. They come in a brown version too, like a brunette version oh, awesome. as well. Ah. Yeah, they're really good. I'm with you on that one, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us today to chat all things ingredients. I'm sure that other people have found this really helpful. I have found it. has been nerding out. Yeah, I have. I just, I I could chat to you all day, but we've got a time limit. So um, (laughs) we'll have to wrap it up here. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right. So what is your PWD KWN? Okay. So mine today is the, it's a new brand to us, but I worked with this skincare brand way back in the day in the first clinic that I worked at on reception. It's called Osmosis. And the serum that I've been using is the Osmosis Rescue Epidermal Repair Serum. I'm loving Osmosis. I'm loving it. Okay. So I haven't used this brand for years. And back in the day, it wasn't anything special. Like I wasn't wowed by it. I was too obsessed with ASAP and I just, you couldn't get me off it. But this product, I looked at the ingredients list, Hannah, and I was like, eh, like nothing special. Yeah. You know, what's going to be so good about this? I put it on my skin. So as everybody that listens to this podcast knows, I have rosacea. I don't want to say it again, but I do. My skin really is a little bit you sensitive. you say rosacea. I know. <laughs> Um, you may not know this, but I have rosacea. About as sick as I am of you saying that you're single. (laughs) So you may not know this, Um, but I'm single and Joe has rosacea. (laughs) So this product has an ingredient in it. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but trioxalane. So this is a stable oxygen molecule and it's an extract of sweet worm wood. And I don't even know what that is. 
but this serum is designed to neutralize toxins. It calms inflammation. Um, it encourages repair of the skin as well, and it also helps to improve skin texture. So for someone with a lot of inflammation, like inflamed acne, rosacea, sorry to say it again, perioral dermatitis, melasma, all of those inflammatory conditions can be improved by using this serum. So I have just been absolutely obsessed with it for the last few weeks. It is the one that I said smells like an indoor pool. Can I be honest? Anything that smells weird, I, I trust instinctively more. Yeah. <laughs> like there's something, about, there's something about really weird, yucky smelling products that I'm like, I trust yeah. that you're doing your job. Yeah. Like a CE for all, it smells yes. like a deli. So I use Floritin CF and it literally smells like it not quite like deli meat. It's not the nicest yeah. scent in the world, but yeah. it's such a good product. So I really trust yeah. the weird smelling stuff. Yeah. Well, this serum isn't the best smelling serum, but I, it's definitely tolerable. Um, but it honestly like is great. I really like they have their plumping moisturizer, which I used on the live I last tried night. That. It really plumps your skin. It really does. Like I'm always loath to say, oh, it's it's plumping my skin instantly, but like it genuinely yeah. And actually, speaking of plumping instantly, that's my product. We both use. Okay, uh, yep, yeah. you go. So this mine is your segue. Is, so this is my segue. I'm going to use it. So <laughs> I think Societe is a product is a brand that we don't talk about enough. It's so underrated. So I, so Belinda sent me a couple of products to use in ISO. Yeah. To be honest, I gave one to Linda to try because I thought we could get Linda to do a product. She uh, she can give me feedback on that as yep. a product. Linda didn't know she needed. She doesn't use serums, yeah. so I'm trying to get her on serums. <laughs> is that a new segment? product Linda didn't know she needed. Yes, I feel like because she did bring it on the live last night. So I was very impressed with her that she was using it. That was a Societe serum that I gave her, but Mm -hmm. I'm actually using the Societe Ultimate Eye Lift Jewel Pack. It is quite expensive, but it comes, it's two eye serum creams in one. So it's kind of like you're getting, and so it'll last, that'll last me years, it feels like. Yeah. I've never used that one. It's got a roll, like this thing that you roll on your eyes and it's really cooling Mm -hmm. and it tingles and it really does give this kind of instant lift effect. So that one really gives like a hydrated plumping look and feel and it tingles. And so after you've Mm -hmm. put that one on and I put that above my brow bone, kind of in the corners and then underneath, and then you add the Firm and Brighten cream, which is also peptide complexes Mm -hmm. and lightens the appearance of dark circles. It'll stimulate collagen. And yeah, so it's like a two in one. Um, I have been loving it. Um, I've been trying a lot of different eye creams lately. So have I. I actually. I've got two I'm loving at the moment. Yeah, I'm getting sent all the eye creams at the moment and I really, this is my favourite of all the ones that I have used. I'm going to save one of the ones that I've been using for next week's PWD, KWN. Yeah, we don't talk about eye creams enough. Yeah, I don't think we do either, but mainly because I just have always felt like Mine don't do anything for my dark circles, but I've been using one that I'm pretty sure is legit working. So um, I'm going to use that for a little bit longer and then I'll put it in as a product I didn't know I needed because we yeah. always struggle to come up with these products because we, we use so many different things. So many, yeah. You and I are both like, oh, what's this week's going to be? Why I really like this is because I feel it's really ultra hydrating. I guess it's probably that dual action because when I got yep. my skin scan, 90% of my under eye lines, fine lines were actually dehydration lines. Were they? Yeah. I have, and I've been ultra dehydrated in ISO. I have not been drinking any water. Have you been the same? <gasps> Neither. Yes, exactly the same. I'm so dehydrated. My lips 
are so dry. Like, I know that I'm not meant to swear, but like, my lips are. F- yes. <laughs> like, I can't. They're, Wait, <laughs> they're is this so a thing? bad. Is this a thing? Yeah, it's it's honestly everybody I've spoken to lately has dry lips. Oh. Um, my fix has been that Lano Lip Scrubber Balm. Oh. It has something in it that just fixes mine immediately. Like no other balm can fix mine. I think we need to have a challenge to drink more water this week. Yeah, I really think we should. I've been drinking like a sip a day. Like it's been really bad. Yeah. And then I Same. have like a Coke so Zero bad. or something. Like it's just been really bad. <laughs> I'm just having like five cups of tea and I don't think that counts as like having water. We, we should have a challenge to drink a litre oh, a day, Hannah. Just a litre. I'd love to drink a litre a day. And even if I drank yeah. 500 mils in the morning and 500 mils before bed, at least I, like, did it because I'm yeah. so dehydrated at the moment. My lips are re- a real yeah. telltale. I know. I feel like my life would change if I started to drink more water, but I've always been really bad at drinking Same. it. I just I don't understand those people that carry around, like, those camelback bottles and they can just down the whole thing. I'd go to the toilet every two seconds, although now's the yeah. time to do it because you're at home. You can go exactly. to the toilet as much as you like. And also something that we keep forgetting to remind you guys about is that we have a podcast page on yes. Adore Beauty. So it's adorebeauty.com.au slash podcast. You can find everything there. So any products that we talk about, it's all listed there. It's got all of our recent episodes, our bonus episodes. And if you're a first-time customer, you can get $15 off orders over $75. So don't forget if you're like thinking, oh, what product did she mention in this section? It will be listed in there. So you can just jump on to adorebeauty.com.au slash podcast. And just to finish off the episode, a few listeners have been sending me some amazing memes. Oh, have they? Oh, my God, Yes. So I've had two sent to me recently. I'm going to send you one, Joe, so we can watch it together. Yeah. People really must know me well. Yep. One is serving size for mac and cheese is always the entire box. And then the <laughs> other one I've just sent you. Is this on Instagram? Yeah, you might need to put the sound okay. up. Oh, my God. It's dogs eat. <laughs> Is that you eating your mac and cheese? That's just like how aggressive is that? Why do they eat it like that? Yeah, why is she giving her dogs mac and cheese? I feel like it's not safe, but anyway. (laughs) Oh, that is you. Anyway, so basically she's got these, um, they're shih tzus and there's how many? There's three of them. Four yep. of them, four of them, and she's giving them a big spoon of mac and cheese. We hope it's not cheese cheese, and they mm. are so aggressively eating it, like it's like, <laughs> nev- like it's just so funny. It's like seeing Hannah in her living room at, at ten o'clock at night. Yeah, that's me. That is me. Oh my god, I t- that is how I eat mac and cheese. By the way, <laughs> you just shovel it in. If you want to go and see that account, it is Jersey Shih Tzu. So Jersey J E R S E Y. S-H-I-H-T-Z-U. God, I did not know how to spell Shih Tzu, but there you go. All right. Well, that's us for another week. See you next time. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. It helps other people to discover us. And also, we really want to know what you thought about this podcast. So if you can leave us a review, that would be much appreciated. Bye.